Hey guys, it's Christian Babcock from the Hunter's Advantage podcast at the Hunter's Advantage. Our goal is to provide you with the best advice and insight from hunting industry professionals, and hopefully you would use that knowledge or advantage on your next adventure. This week on the podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing the author of Crimson Arrows, a bow hunting odyssey, Iad Yahui. He's been bow hunting for nearly 30 years, traveling across the United States, Canada, and Africa, and he lays that out in his book with over 20 stories of individual harvests, ranging from turkeys to caribou to moose to whitetail and many more species. I hope you guys get a ton of value from this episode of the podcast. He had was super wise about hunting and about life, and we're definitely going to be chatting again in the near future. Thanks, guys. Enjoy. I uh, read the book, loved it. Uh, Thank you. I wanted to reach out to you, uh, just get you to explain it a little bit. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that could could learn a lot from it. Um, so maybe you could just start out by giving us a little bit background into yourself, uh, what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Uh, well, my name's Ed Yaoi. I'm from Southeast Iowa here. Uh, I'm an optometrist, and my family, uh, we've been here for about 10 years and grew up in Southeast Iowa, and I've been bow hunting since I was uh, 13 or 14 years old, and I kind of grew up in a in a non-hunting family and I've always right. really enjoyed it and catered to the outdoors and uh it's been a passion of mine since I was young so that's that kind of what uh spurred the uh the interest in, in writing the book and along with my my two boys who I wanted them one day to be able to look back and, and have some idea of, of some of the uh different things I did so yeah definitely so who if you grew up in a family not bow hunting uh who got you into it you know it, it's it's interesting there was a, a gentleman by the name of Roger and his son Andy um, I, I really pushed my parents to, you know, kind of let me try hunting and get involved with hunting and, and they were hesitant at first and they took me fishing and different things like that. But with no experience in the woods, they were a little hesitant. So we went to the hunter safety course in Iowa and, and there I met this gentleman by the name of Roger and his son. And he kind of took me under his wing and, and, uh, took me small game hunting. And mm. eventually I got to see him and Andy shoot their bows and I was kind of taken aback by it. And, and really that's where my passion my passion started so for archery right. cool so you, you did a little bit of hunting apart from archery and then fell in love with archery when you started doing that now did you start hunting whitetail is that how you started out yeah the first animal i hunted with the bow without a doubt was a white was whitetail here in iowa and uh, uh we started small game hunting you know squirrels and rabbits and and it took about a year year and a half of practice and rogers said you know we'll give it a shot this fall and that was the fall of 92 and I uh, talk about a steep le- learning curve. It was a uh, yeah. It was rude awakening to uh, to say it mildly. So right, definitely. So in the book, you talk a lot about failure in bow hunting, which I think is something people don't talk about enough. Um, I got a lot of friends that are kind of hesitant. So if they miss, they're probably not going to tell you. So uh, <laughs> could you could you give us a little insight into that? Um, so why do you talk about that so much in the book? Why are you so honest about it in the book? You know, I think in life at least for me, you know, whether it's sports or, or work or hunting, I think I learned the most and from, from people that have had experiences where setbacks and then been able to come back from those and learn from them, fail forward, if you will. Right. Uh, I can't say I really appreciate or ever learned anything from someone who never had a setback or a pitfall, or, um, if anything, it makes you less interested in whatever you're doing, making you possibly feel like, you know, you're not good enough or mm-hmm. you don't have what it takes or, uh, so essentially, I thought it was very important. In fact, probably the most important thing of the book was to let the young bow hunters know and people who get involved in bow hunting that, you know, there are going to be setbacks. There are going to be things no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, 
it is not going to work out the way you wanted it to. And I think how you handle those situations and learn from them says as much about you as anything you you take home or tag. So I always really respected and appreciated those bow hunters who were honest and and mm-hmm. uh, I thought it was important. And some of my friends even said, "Boy, after they read it, said, you know, you really laid it out there, did you?" You know, yeah. I said, "Yeah, I think that was important for me for my for my children to look and they're going to have their setbacks and and I wanted them to be able to say, "Hey, it's okay to fail." get back on your feet and move forward and learn from it. Um, and that's how I think you get better in life. So um, I think it speaks as much to life as bow hunting. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So who who would you say this this book is for? Is it for all bow hunters, young bow hunters, or just all of them together? What, what do you think? I think I would like to think so. I, I really mm-hmm. wrote it in, in a sense of uh, there's so many great bow hunters out there and some of my, some of my heroes, you know, looking up to like Chuck Adams and Tom Miranda and, those guys have really paved the way for us bow hunters and um but i really wanted to also write it for the bow hunter who may never leave iowa to bow hunt they just right. enjoy whitetails and turkeys or you know out west is you know elk hunting um it really was made also for coming from a non-hunting family it was important for mm-hmm. me for my family to say hey i liked it i read it i understand why you sit in a tree now for eight yeah. hours and 10 degree weather or you know, why you punish yourself on these hunts because it's, it's worth so much more than just the picture or the adventure. It's, it's, uh, so I I think it's catered to, I would say as much to the experienced bow hunter as Mm -hmm. someone who's never hunted at all. And I'd like to think they stepped away from it. They'd say, you know, I had a different idea of what hunting was like, or, you know, bow hunting these, they do care about wildlife. They do absorb so much more than just the kill or the hunt. Um, that's why I like to incorporate everything from, you know, small game that I saw to food plot. So Mm -hmm. I think it's for everyone. I'd like to think so. Yeah, definitely. I definitely think so. Uh, you talk a lot about, um, a lot of your hunts, you went on outfitters because, you know, chasing caribou moose, you obviously don't have the time to go up there and check it out yourself. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. could you speak into a little bit about how you utilize outfitters, um, throughout your hunting journey, uh, for success? Cause I think a little bit of the drawback I've heard from people is, you know, if you think about it in terms of you had one week to kill the animal you want, mm-hmm. and that could be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting writing the book. You know, the whitetail and turkey hunts were, I grew up here in Iowa. It's my home. Those yeah. were all yourself. And, and, and also to, to flip the coin when you leave and get away from your family. And like you said, you have a week or two. Mm-hmm. And I tip my hat to the do-it-yourself guys. In fact, as I get, as I get older, I'm starting to do more and more of that. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, whether you're self-employed, um, working for yourself, it's hard to get away from family. And, and I have a lot of friends that enjoy that. They love going out West and spending a week. But for me, it was not so much as harvesting the animal, but in that week, you learn so much from the outfitter or the yeah. people that are, are from that area with the, the habits of the animals and things of that nature. So it, it certainly can go both ways. And, uh, it just depends on, I had so many things I wanted to experience and see, um, I knew I, I, I wanted to experience in as much as I could in that week with an outfitter. And right. some of them didn't work out, like the cougar hunt. Uh, I went on four cougar hunts. Mm-hmm. You know, we went 30 days and never saw an animal. And uh, that's crazy. And you talk about learning a lot in those. Yeah. And so, and there's guys I know that have gone for a day and, and taken their animals. So, you know, but that cougar experience was as memorable to, as memorable to me as anything, even though it took that long to accomplish it. So, I right. think it really depends on what you want to accomplish and what, at the end of the day, how 
how do you look at it? If you feel like going with an outfitter is going to lessen the experience, then I would urge you not to do it. And if you feel like you really want to experience all there is to that uh, ecosystem or that area, then I think it's a, it's a great idea. So yeah, it really depends, but it certainly, I think the impression people get from outfitters is um, maybe a high fence situation or here right. there's the animal pull the trigger. And I think the biggest thing an outfitter does for you is get you in an area quicker, safer, mm -hmm. and lets you experience the hunt more thoroughly than you would maybe three or four days in trying to to uh, get the lay of the land, if you will. So, yeah. but yeah, whatever whatever brings more satisfaction to you, I think is right the way to go with that. Yeah, definitely. I tried it at an elk or a uh, antelope hunt this fall, and it was definitely not what I was expecting. And without a guide, or it was it wasn't a guide; it was a uh, do it yourself per se, but uh, I would never would have known anything if you would have pointed us in the right direction. Uh, yeah, so. it's amazing. It's amazing, and uh, it's interesting you bring that up. Uh, for instance, whitetails here in Iowa, I, I'm not sure I would enjoy an outfitted whitetail hunt mm -hmm. as much as I do, because um, that's how I grew up hunting, just like an elk hunter in Colorado, right. Wyoming. That's their bread and butter. So, um, But certainly, there's not one right answer, and uh, the best advice I could give is, is whatever you think is going to bring you the most satisfaction. Yeah, definitely. So you've been on a ton of hunts. We see that uh, in the book. What are a couple of your most memorable hunts? I would say as a kid growing up, I dreamed about moose hunting as much as anything. And I always envisioned just seeing Alaska. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was the most memorable hunt. And we had some adventures in that hunt, as the book points out, with some accidents and, you know, talk about you know, where we took the moose and where we hunted the moose and things of that nature. Um, and physically, I'd say the mountain goat hunt in Alaska, physically and mentally, was that was one of those hunts where I was telling my wife the other day, numerous times on that hunt, I, I would tell myself, boy, this, I don't know if I can do this or this is right. not going to work out. Or if I get up that cliff, I'm not getting off that cliff. And so I think mentally and physically, mountain goat always will stand in my mind as uh, my most difficult and mm -hmm. uh, I'd say moose as far as a, a dream hunt. That was my... Yeah. A dream as a kid to see in that that area yeah definitely so how, growing up in iowa hunting whitetail primarily i'm from oklahoma so we we do have a little bit of diversity mm -hmm. uh, but we mainly have whitetail uh so that's kind of how i've grown up sitting in the stand antelope was my first experience as a more of a western hunt uh really enjoyed it how do you trans or how did you transition from hunting from whitetail to moose and, and what is the big difference there for people maybe that are that are only hunting whitetail because i've had a i have my roommate uh, last semester tell me I don't think I want to hunt, hunt antelope or any western animals because I've never done it before I was like well you need right. to try it yeah. absolutely no I think it's that's that's well said uh, I think you'll never really know what trips your trigger if you will mm -hmm. until you experience those hunts and elk for instance you know I'd love to do elk again the rest of my life whereas you know muskox in the arctic was a great experience to see that part of the world and that's a great example of a do-it-yourself versus uh um a guided hunt were up there that could cost you your life. It's like the the surface of the moon. And if you turn yeah. left, right, wrong, it's, I mean, you may not get back in time to, to, um, before sun sunset. So I would say, obviously the ecosystems are the most different that I can explain, like the mountains of Alaska, the West, and the animals are so different. And for me, mm -hmm. it was the most important thing was seeing those animals that I dreamed about in the environment I dreamed about them in. So so I wouldn't want to hunt black bear in, you know, in Kentucky, for instance. I would like to hunt them in the north. 
Um, right. Just like I love to hunt turkeys in Kentucky because growing up, those are the things I envisioned. So I would urge, you know, everyone to, you know, keep an open mind with some of these, these different hunts. And I will say that I think whitetails and turkey are, are the two toughest, if not, you know, right up there with mountain goat and elk, um, mm-hmm. the toughest species in North America. So, I mean, if you can make a good shot on a whitetail and, and, and bring them home, harvest them, um, I think you can hunt anything. And right. it's just, uh, you know, the open country of the West, to, you know, the physical nature of the North, the mountains. So um, until you experience it, it's hard to to uh, kind of turn the other cheek that you're not interested in it. So what what did you do differently when you're, say, oh, I know I'm going to have an elk hunt in August? Uh, what what How do you prepare differently as a bow hunter? Um, are you doing things physically? I know you said you like to work out quite a bit in your book and your mm-hmm. prime, at least you did. Uh, yeah. but how, what do you, what do you do? How do you prepare differently for a hunt like that? Say something not as physically demanding like whitetail. Oh, that's a great question. You know, uh, for whitetails, as an example, um, the best preparation I do is, you know, I actually will climb into trees in August and a lot of times I'll shoot one arrow, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I know it's a lot of work for one, but it is amazing your mindset change. If you get one arrow, I mean, yeah. I think we get out there and fling six, seven, you know, two dozen shots and we say, oh, you know, you're making great shots every time. But when you get one shot, it's amazing mm-hmm. how your muscle and your mind changes. So for whitetails, I do a lot of, of tree stand um, practice and often towards the end of the season, sometimes just one arrow. I might go a morning and shoot a hundred arrows, yeah. but if I get in the tree stand, it's often just one arrow as the season draws near. And as, as far as the Western hunts like mountain goat and moose, um, the physical nature of those hunts, you know, I think running it's great and i used to do a ton of it but you know getting if you do anything vertical whether it's hills yeah. or on treadmill or the matrix that revolving staircase that one of these days is going to take my life i'm pretty sure yeah uh, the stairmaster back oh gosh that thing's a killer <laughs> and yeah. uh that would be how i'd practice for those hunts and then at the same time you know after an exerting hunt like that then i would also do your practice session because you know if you you know sprint up a mountain on an elk and he's bugling in your face and your heart's hammering and you're hidden by an aspen tree and he steps yeah. out and you get one shot. The last thing you're going to be is calm. I mean, you're mm-hmm. probably not going to be dry. You're going to be sweating. And, and so those how, when I practice for all those hunts and, and antelope, like you said, you know, yeah. getting in a double hole blind in August when it's a hundred degrees and really feeling that heat, you know, and knowing you're going to yeah. be in there for a long time. So I, I, I don't think you have to do those, those types of things, but they certainly help. Um, yeah. They certainly help. Uh, one more thing I, I thought was super interesting, and this is something I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm pretty inexperienced when it comes to turkey. I've killed a few turkey. Uh, uh-huh. but what I thought was super interesting is the idea that turkeys don't mind blinds as much. And what is your experience? Yeah. Like, for deer, they do. If it's not grassed in, it's Absolutely. not a hidden silhouette, they're not, on, they're not about it. But either why do you think that is, or could you talk a little bit in your experience how it works um, with pop-up blind hunting with a bow? Because turkey hunting is hard with a bow. It's tough. It is very challenging, and they always say if a if a turkey could smell, you'd never kill one. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so thank goodness they can't. But you know, I've always been fascinated by that. When I started bow hunting them exclusively twenty years ago, actually, uh, this next spring will be my twenty first year with just the bow with chasing turkeys. Mm-hmm. I remember reading that and thinking, "There's no way, like, there's no way you can put up a blind in the middle of a field abruptly, and mm-hmm. these turkeys will just walk right in." So if there's an Achilles heel that these that wild turkeys have it's it's the fact that they don't mind a three-dimensional object in a field and why that is 
I don't know. But what they do mind is anything that moves, flashes, or has any uh, uh, sound to it. So if you have a blind that's not really taut and tight and secured well, as some of those stories in the book will show, they really will not come in. And, you know, I sometimes people say, oh, they're blind shy or they're decoy shy. I think their moods change every day. You know, one yeah. of the big toms I ever killed, I hunted the same field for four weeks, did nothing different. <laughs> and the last day of the season, he ran right in. So, uh, and that was a number of years ago. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, it's just, just like humans, they have their different moods. But, you right. know, deer and turkey are so different. You know, turkeys, I always say, have no curiosity. And deer, yeah. it's, they're like cats, you know, they got to see what's going on. And I hate when deer come in during turkey season because you know they're not leaving. They're going to make sure they figure out what you are, whereas turkeys. So I can't speak to the, for sure, the reason why, but they definitely, do not blind. I think that's where people make the biggest mistakes with turkeys is they'll set up their blinds on the edge of the timber. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, that's where the predators live. You know, they'll, they'll lie on the edge like a big muskie or a pike and they'll wait for something to walk by and then sprint out. And right. But if you're in the middle of a pasture and their greatest sense is their eyesight, you can see why they feel comfortable out there. And, and so that's why I think that helps. Uh, but the guys that can kill birds consistently without a blind, um, I tip my hat to them because as you said, it's a, uh, maybe one of the diff- most difficult things in, in bow hunting. I agree. Um, so have you done any African game hunting? I see something in the background there that looks like an African game animal. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, my, uh, little three, my three-year-old loves that thing. He always comes out here and tries to climb up on it, and my wife's always yelling at me about it. So it's, uh, yeah, I've done. I've been to Africa once with my mm-hmm. wife. Uh, we actually went there on our honeymoon, and I went a week before to hunt, and then <laughs> and then she came and we did like a safari uh, to uh, um, Kruger National Park where we got to mm-hmm. see a lot of the animals. But Africa, you know, it was interesting. You know, Africa, when I went, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to have a smorgasbord of animals and, you know, whatever you want. And, and we had some rain, a, a lot of rain before I got there. And just like antelope, um, when yep. you hunt in these water holes, I mean, there's one point we sat for three days and didn't see an animal. And uh, that was humbling. Oh. So I've done some Africa, a week in Africa, and, and took some nice animals. But um, that opened my eyes to bow hunting is bow hunting. Whether you're, whether you're in Iowa or Africa, you can have great hunts and you can have days where you're like, I am done with this. So, um, yeah. But I would love to go back one day, maybe when my kids get older, or, um, maybe hunt a different uh, a different country, you know, in Africa. So, yeah, um, yeah but I would recommend that as well. Mm, that's cool. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's funny. That's about the same situation we had when I went antelope hunting. It was it was oh if if it's 90 degrees or, or hotter you're, you're guaranteed an antelope you know we got a few watering yeah. holes they're going to be there it's a different country you know 20 miles just you can see everywhere but it rained the night before and the guy said you know what i think spot and stock's going to be your option because uh, <laughs> they'll drink out of the ro- the puddles in the road when it starts oh. raining oh you know it's like it's a great point it's a great great point christian you you say you know like antelope if you get rain or with, you know, um, um, Africa, if you get rain or with cougars, if you don't have good tracking conditions or elk, if it's too hot, whitetails is too hot. So every species has its downfall and, and you yeah. hope and, and you pray when you get out there that things go your way. But, um, if you get the wrong conditions, especially bow hunting, um, and as you know, with rifle, it's different. And, and I've certainly grew up hunting with guns and, you know, pheasants, I had bird dogs and small game and, um, but it's, it's just different. It's harder. Um, things definitely have to go more your way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I know you're in a different season of life uh, now as probably when you most of these stories took place. So I'm just wondering, how do you – I'm getting married in June, so I, and I think a lot of people – Congratulations. That are, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, that's awesome. That's great, man. Yeah. 
I'm excited. So <laughs> my, my question is, how do you navigate uh, more of a commitment, um, you know, to your wife, um, to your soon-to-be kids, um, mm-hmm. and still get to pursue what you love the most outside of those things and God, obviously. So how, how do you navigate those things now post those decisions? That was a great question. It's a great question. I really think, you know, choosing the right spouse is mm-hmm. one of the most important decisions you can make, whether it's hunting or not. And right. uh, you hope that you know each other well enough that when you get into these things, there's no uh, animosity or, oh, I didn't see that coming. But at the same time, you know, uh, when I had children and got married, I, my family came first. And that's not right. to say that there's days that that I'm uh, like, oh, I'd love to be in a tree stand. Or, um, But I, I, my biggest regret, I would always say, is, is 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when you're in this this trophy room filled with dust and, you know, these, these creatures on the wall that you look back and you missed a baseball game or you, you know, you missed a trip with your kids or, um, and, and I'm not saying that's forever, but for me, um, it was an easy decision to say, you know, uh, I'd like to do a lot of these hunts when I'm younger and I had some health issues too, but I think you navigate those things by, you know, being open and honest with your spouse and saying, this is who I am and part of what I need. And, and uh, if they care about you, they're, they're going to work that out with you. But at the same time, taking advantage of that's also a mistake where you're gone every weekend or, you know, uh, take off for two months at a time. And I think that wears wears everybody down. So um, it was an easy decision for me. But at the same time, uh, also make sure to be true to yourself and and do those things. Otherwise, there'll be some resentment and you won't you won't be who you are. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's extremely true i'm lucky to have that does that does support me like i said i mean there's there's things you're doing like oh boy i played that one wrong or uh especially kids kids are game changers there's nothing greater in the world i've ever experienced but um you know it's also a challenge to um but once you start incorporating them in your life and and removing yourself from the equation uh it makes it a lot easier so but no it's it's a great uh, marriage congratulations again and kids thank you um yeah just being open and honest i think is the a hallmark of success with that. Yeah. So have you seen yourself shift from a, I know for me, it's quantity. I need, mm-hmm. I need weekends in the woods. I've set my schedule up on the fall where I don't go to class on Friday. I'm gone mm-hmm. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You can check that off in the fall. I'm not going to be there <laughs> mm-hmm. now. I'm in college. Mm-hmm. So I'm a lot more flexible with that. So when you shift into this season of life, is it more like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go quality, you know, I'm going to book two hunts that I absolutely want to do this year and try to get out a few weekends, or is mm-hmm. it, I'm still going to try to get, you know, 30 days in a tree this, this fall, or how does, how does that work that's, for you? You know, that's a great question too. It's, it's a, a great question. You know, I've never been a, a guy to say, you know, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, mm-hmm. um, you know, and lock the key, you know, lock the door and throw the key away. Um, right. but I, like you said, if you really, let's say for instance, your goal is you want to moose hunt. And I really think in life, if you say, I'm going to, I'm going to, it usually never happens. Right. I think those big decisions you want, if you want to shoot an antelope or you want to see the West, those are the decisions you, you say to your significant other or yourself. And you say, Hey, you know, next year I'm going to, what I usually did, Christian, I would book the hunt yeah. and then find a way to go, you know? And I think uh, you know, they say, they say, burn your ships, you know? Yeah, you know, so there's no way, to, no way to leave, and uh, that worked beautifully well for me because then I said, "Boy, you know, I'm in it now. Like, I've got to, yeah. I've got to be in shape, and I've got to make the work commitment." But for what, as another example, whitetail this fall, I was able to take one of the better bucks of my life, mm-hmm. and I didn't hunt for the first three weeks of the season. But when the conditions yeah. shifted, and I told my wife, I said, "You know, I really got to go this weekend. Things are right. I got to go." 
and she knew uh, knew me well enough to say, yeah, you know, go ahead, you know, we'll be fine here. So versus saying I'm hunting 10 days in October, no matter what, and yeah. eight of those days, 90 degrees with the wrong wind, all, all right. of a sudden she's mad at you for being gone. And mm-hmm. you know darn well you're not going to have any success under those conditions. So right. I think putting timetables like I'm going to hunt 10 days in October and 30 days in November, no matter what, um, is maybe the wrong mindset. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of that thought, taking a trip and saying, hey, I really would like to shoot a black bear yeah. before I'm 30, and I'm going to book a hunt in Ontario for next May. Yeah. And so I think you have do. I think you need – So. Another pinnacle, I want to say a cornerstone uh, for you in your life has been your faith, which is super admirable. I'm a Christian too, super encouraging to read the book. Uh, mm-hmm. So what what role has that played in bow hunting? Is that giving you, are you more secure, you know, if I don't kill? I know some people get super uh, emotional about what other people are doing. So mm-hmm. if, if I don't kill a black bear, I don't find my worth in that, so that doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how do you navigate um, – your faith and what what is it, what role has that played in your in your bow hunting you know career success? Uh, I'm very close, you know, I'm very close with God and and uh, you know I grew up that way. We you know uh, and it's always been a really personal thing. And I always said there's you know <laughs> I actually said in the book I, I never wasted my prayers on hunting. And yeah. there's a couple situations <laughs> where we're like you know you know there's a little help here. Yeah. Uh, but to me, I've had so many experiences in my life and so many close calls, health issues things that I've, they always say things happen to everybody, but not everybody sees them. Right. You know, that I, I, I know without a doubt that there's higher powers and, and I have a very close, like I said, uh, but I also keep it close to the heart and um, I don't talk about it much and things of that nature, but it's played a huge role to the point, like you said, where you don't define yourself on the successes mm-hmm. you have. And I think when you're younger, there's a lot of ego when you're younger, right. whether you like it or not, there is people can say, I love, I love to talk to the young bow hunters when they come into the pro shops and they got this beautiful buck and they're like, ah, you know, he only scores 130 and, you know, I ran out of time and just decided to take him. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I bet you anything, your heart was beating out of your chest and, you know, you almost fell out of the tree when you took that deer. Yeah. And it's okay to say that. And it's okay to say, hey, you know, this was great for me. And I think as you get older, at least what I've found is that ego disappears and you realize, and I think it, it just has to come with age and 20 years from now, I'm going to look back at me now at 42 and go, boy, geez, you know, you're way more into yourself at 42 than you are now, even though you think you've taken some strides. So, but the older I get, the closer I get to God and you realize what's important. And sometimes you look back and you're kind of embarrassed because you're right. like, Oh, geez, I put so much weight on making sure I killed the Turkey that year. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm just, you know, you're lucky to walk out there and see what you see and hear what you hear. So I think to push a young person into whether it's faith or bow hunting, I think they need to come around full circle on their own and they figure it out on their own. And then everything they figure out is is more solidified, whether it's faith or bow hunting. Um, I do that with my kids, too. You know, you we pray every night before we go to bed. And um, but at the same time, you know, I don't drill them every day and say, you know, this, right. this and because I think if anything, that may be pushing them away a little bit. So. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of my life and um, and definitely uh, has helped me get through some tough times. So, um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, that just makes me think back to this year. Uh, so I've been on a steady decline of harvesting deer for the last three years. <laughs> I went four, three, and then two. I went I went more times this year than I could, than I could care to admit and only killed two deer. So I think that hey, the less – 
Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it was all right for me, and I was happy with it. But something I did want to touch on is, so I am, I'm from o- Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know how big our deer in the body-wise are. And something I've always been really obsessed with is the Midwest, you know, size mm-hmm. of a whitetail. So mm-hmm. how how big is, is a whitetail in Iowa, uh, typically? Um, me, that's a great question. And uh, you're going to laugh because it's uh, all your questions. By the way, the people listening to this, we have not talked about these questions very much and so it's funny you're asking me these things because i we just talked about this with my friend the other day yeah um i i think the whitetails in the midwest are as big as anywhere in the world uh, you know i mm-hmm. can't say I've ever, I've ever hunted in northern canada but beyond saskatchewan you know i don't think they're any bigger anywhere else the one i took this year he was so big that mm-hmm. that i actually told my buddies i'm like we've got to get this thing back to the barn and weigh this thing to see i've never seen anything like it and he yeah. ended up weighing 271 on the hoof. And Oof. to see something that big in front of you, it's really hard to, you know, I hunted mule deer out west in Alberta, and it looked like a mule deer, which are bigger than whitetail. Yeah. Uh, but uh, my buddy's in Florida, and he hunts, you know, uh, whitetails in Florida. And um, I've seen a couple, and it just, uh, to me, like you, like I said earlier, hunting Iowa whitetails is always going to be an Iowa thing for me because I'm kind of spoiled with the body size. And that's what trips my trigger is a mature whitetail's body size. Yeah. You know, I've taken some that wouldn't necessarily score the highest, but the thick neck and the jowls and the mm-hmm. way they carry themselves, is just different than anything in the woods. And uh, so I'm like you, I, I, I was spoiled and, and blessed to grow up here to see yeah. that. But um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's, I think it's night and day whether, and I think it's genetics and food sources and growing seasons. Uh, but we definitely have the biggest deer, like I said, beyond Northern Canada, I think in the world. So, right. Cool. So what, uh, do you guys have a good public land program up there? <laughs> We've got some great, you know, I think it's over, overlooked. Uh, um, some of the nastiest, thickest cover I've ever seen has been on public ground. Mm-hmm. And it's just like anything in life, if it just can't be good, right? It just can't be. And I know some guys that that, that just take absolute giants on public ground every year, and um, they're there. And it's just a matter of, you know, there's, you know, you always have them back of your mind, you know, safety factors. And like you said, the time, my time is so limited. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I don't get nearly as much time in the woods. Um, and I make that decision so I can be home with the kids and, and, and baseball games and that. Right. But uh, I would never hesitate ever if someone said hey you've got to hunt public ground for four years i say bring it on let's do it because I, yeah. I i really think they're here i mean they're they're here as much as uh, anywhere and we've got great shimmick forest and there's some areas in, in north central iowa that are good uh or excuse me south central so no we've got some beautiful public ground that's awesome that sounds great so uh, anything else you want to tell us about the book um because I I, I I really really enjoyed it. I so basically I just wanted to tell everyone uh, how it was laid out. It was a series of individual hunts based by chapter, right? Um, yes. And, yeah. There's. Yep. Okay. Uh, and what all what all species are in there that we we had a custom maybe me and you wouldn't be used to seeing. So you got caribou. Think, uh, yeah, there's caribou in there. There's muskox, uh, cougar, moose, uh, elk. Uh, mountain goat um mm-hmm. the thing that i was really uh, really excited about was it's got over 130 color photos in the book throughout the last yeah. 30 years that i was able to keep and i think a lot of people who have read it have enjoyed that to see you know yeah. when i was younger versus and some of the different ecosystems you know there's pictures of the alberta forest in the winter and you know the um you know central alaska hunting moose and so 
you know, there's, I'd say half the book is turkeys and whitetail yeah. do yourself. And then the other half is mule deer, muskox, mountain goat, cougar, and moose, etc. cetera. Um, right. I, I believe there's pretty much every North American species, an example hunt in there, except sheep, which mm -hmm. one day, hopefully I'll draw that tag. But uh, yeah. another thing of interest, and I haven't brought this up yet. Um, we kind of kept it under a hat, but in about two weeks, three weeks, we've been working on it for the last six months. Mm -hmm. um, the audible version will be out. And, okay. uh, publishing company uh they got a voice actor to do it um mm -hmm. i thought about doing it <laughs> yeah this guy really he really knocked it out of the park I'm, I'm blessed to have him do it his name was richard fish mm -hmm. um the you know stereotypical if you can imagine a guy t telling a story by a campfire yeah uh, he's an older gentleman um i listened to it and i really and i went back to read some of it i'm like wow uh, this guy really adds life to this story that uh, right. uh was wild or um alligator stories in there um, so yeah if you don't have time to read um mm -hmm. which i can understand i do a lot of audible books that will be out here in february um and you can get that on audible.com that's awesome that sounds great yeah, I'm, excited. I'm excited um what was, i was gonna touch on one more thing oh so i really really enjoyed the pictures uh thank <laughs> you what what i thought was really cool about the pictures is you read and they're not first so you don't get to see the harvest picture first uh <laughs> You're really, really into the book, and it's a gratifying story to turn and see a, a nice picture like that. So did you just carry a camera with you personally to take all those pictures? I did, you know, and I and I, uh, I know a lot of people haven't seen the book, but I don't know if you recall that picture of that lynx, mm -hmm. you know, in the book with the with the bear hunt, the lynx that, you know, stalked me. It was uh, – I always told my wife, if I didn't have that picture, I don't think I would have wrote that story because I don't think anybody would have believed you, right. you know, that this lynx would actually – stalk you and get within 10 yards of you so everywhere i went i always had a camera um and they're really not fancy cameras i mean the camera that lynx picture was taken with was a, a ten dollar disposable that i just kept oh. in my bag in case uh so yeah i always carry a camera always um and a tripod in my truck and uh, a lot of the pictures are done with a timer um yeah. you know the cactus story where i uh unfortunately didn't see where i so you know you set the time you run back so yeah um but yeah, I think it's important to capture those images and then try to get them in a in a way that if a non-hunter saw it, um, or like I say, my mom, if my mom saw it, would she, right, you know, be okay with it? So um, I took great pains to try to make the the best pictures I could for that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did you ever record any of your hunts? You know, it's a great question. We I did one hunt uh, that the Osceola turkey hunt in there yeah. in the book um, with uh, Woodhaven calls and um, uh, double bull archery at the time and mm -hmm. and i enjoyed it but um it's interesting it's just like writing i think i think some guys have such a talent for videography right. and god bless them for it i love the videos i grew up with without the real tree videos and mark Drury and those guys doing the things they've done yeah. um i mean but at the same time for me after i've done a couple of video hunts i so much more enjoy hunting and then writing about it than than right. a videography so i haven't done a lot of videography um, but I tip my hat to those guys that do because it's it's a lot of work and uh, mm -hmm. it takes a true t talent to do it right. Yeah, definitely. I, I think what's what's shied me away from that is the the video first and then the hunting second. And I <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't want to say it, but there was a couple times where I was like, "Are you serious? Like we can't?" Yeah, you know, he's like, "Oh yeah, you got to you know, you got to wait, you got to wait." And I'm like, you know, which is great, and I respected that, but um, it definitely was nothing that drew my interest. Uh, even now, I mean, guys have asked me, do you want to go? And I'm like, ah, you know, I'd really, uh, I mean, the Nate, I, I, like I said, uh, the spiritual aspects of being out there are so important to me. And it's just mm -hmm. nice to, 
not um you know they sometimes say taking pictures you know can say you're so enthralled with that that you miss the experience you know right. so um but yeah thank goodness there's people out there that love it and do such a great job with it but i never had the talent for videography no sir yeah definitely cool well this this has been great uh so it's the book if, if anyone's listening it's crimson arrows a bow hunting odyssey and I'm gonna I'm gonna let you say your, your name so you give it justice. It's oh by... yeah, no no it's uh <laughs> yeah it's a uh, Ead Yayawi, and, and uh, you can get it. It's called Crimson Arrows. It's on Amazon. Um, I've got a website, uh, crimsonarrows.com. And actually, uh, Christian uh, forgot to mention over the last year I've I've written three other stories, and we did mm-hmm. something different this year. We we actually the gentleman that does the Audible book, um, Richard yeah. Fish, he actually was gracious enough to record those three stories that will be on my website for free. Okay. Um, you'll be able to get those here probably within a week or two um, at crimsonarrows.com, and you can hear uh, um, a couple stories that I've written in the last year and get a feel for if you like his voice and if you like the nature of the stories. And then Crimson Arrows will be on audible.com as well with uh, 27 other stories. So, yeah, I'm excited, and we'll uh, we'll see where that goes. But I uh, would love to, to talk to you again in the future, and I can't thank you enough for having me. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate it. I can't wait to, to listen to three three more of those stories. I really enjoyed them. Well, thank but you, Chris. This, is, this, <laughs> this has been great. Uh, thanks thanks for being on here, and I really enjoyed the book, and I'm definitely going to recommend it to more people, anyone that will listen. Thank you, sir. Thank you so yeah. much. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right, bud. Take care of yourself. All right. You too. See ya. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Well, as you can see, guys, Yad is a guy that is full of bow hunting knowledge And if you enjoyed this podcast, even in the slightest, and his insight and the value that he brought to you, I would encourage you strongly to check out his book at crimsonarrows.com, also available on Amazon. The book title is Crimson Arrows, A Bow Hunting Odyssey, also available on Audible, coming soon in mid-February. Thank you guys for tuning in. This was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this, go ahead and leave a comment and Leave us a comment on who you would like to see on the podcast next. Thanks, guys. Peace.